You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Conductor Asher Fish is backstage at Lyric. I want them to go out and say that they heard wonderful singing and wonderful music making, but that the orchestra was really a major part of what was going on. So it's tricky because you you don't want to be too loud, but we have a wonderful cast with huge voices, so I don't have this problem. I'm lucky. I can play the the real dynamics that are written, and I don't have to just hush them and shush them down. And that's what I hope that they can go home with, a, a sound experience that includes the orchestra. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. Asher Fish is returning to Lyric Opera this season to conduct his first performances of Verdi's A Masked Ball. Maestro Fish is former music director of the Vienna Volksoper and the Israeli Opera. He was recently appointed principal guest conductor of the Seattle Opera. Prior to his engagement with Lyric Opera, he was in town to conduct performances with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. He recently sat down with me to talk about Umbalo in Mascara. Before we get to that conversation, here's the story of the opera. Gustavus, king of Sweden, is in love with Amelia, the wife of his best friend and secretary, Count Ankestrom. The frightened Amelia meets secretly with a fortune teller, Ulrika, Madame Arvidsson, who advises her to gather an herb that will create a magic potion, enabling her to forget any thought of infidelity. Madame Arvidsson encounters Gustavus as well, and in telling his fortune, she reveals that he will be killed by the next man to shake his hand. When that man turns out to be Ankestrom, Gustavus and his friends reject Madame Arvidsson's prediction. Late at night, Amelia is gathering the herb when she meets Gustavus. The two declare their love, but are then surprised by Ankestrom. Gustavus asks his friend, to escort his veiled companion back to town while asking her no questions. Conspirators plotting against Gustavus demand the lady's identity, and when Amelia lifts her veil, Ankestrom is stunned. He later joins the conspirators, and in drawing lots, it's determined that he will be the one to kill the king. At a masked ball, Gustavus is assassinated by Ankestrom, but he demands that no one seek vengeance for the murder. Too late, Ankestrom learns that his wife is innocent and that Gustavus had decided never to see her again. Now, on to my conversation with conductor Asher Fish. I hope you enjoy it. I'm here with Asher Fish, who is back in town to conduct the uh, production of Verdi's Un Baller in Mascara, a masked ball. Welcome back. Thank you. This is opera number four, four for you? Yeah. And what were the preceding three? Butterfly was the first one, Macbeth, the previous production, and uh, Fledermouse. Oh, that wonderful. The first time we ever did a German-language Fledermouse, I and think it, it was. It, I tell everybody in the world, I said, look, we did it in Chicago. The audience was laughing. It works. It's just it should be done in it was German. brilliant. I remember. But this is your first Ballerine Mascara, isn't it? Yes, it is. How do you know? <laughs> <laughs> we have a way of finding these things out. Was it a good idea to wait before tackling it, or had you wanted to do it for a I, long time? I never w- no, it's, it was not a decision. You know how it is. You fall upon the operas which are there, and you do them. So I did Un Giorno di Regno. I did uh, Macbeth. I did uh, all kinds of 
the rarer stuff. Not not all of them, but a few. And now I'm doing Ballo, and I still have not done Truvatore. So this was premiered six years after Traviata, and I think it was like eight years before Don Carlos. Yeah. So it's just an interesting time in Verdi's career. What do you hear in this piece of both the earlier Verdi and the later Verdi? Because doesn't it, it, it echo one and look forward to the other? Yes, I think if he would, probably if he would dare, he would plunge more into the later stuff. I think he, he I, when he goes into the lighter color in this, I feel that it's sort of, he feels that he needs to do it because that's the norm and that's what's expected. And then later on in Bocanegra, Don Carlo, he gets into the dark color, which we really love. So he's still, he's, he's fighting with himself. And, and it's a problem. When you conduct it, you, you sometimes say, no, I don't want Oscar's aria now. I want the drama to continue. But he's, it's, he's yeah, you see, you know, it's a, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't have had the later operas without this process, as it is with every composer. So, of course, you have to see it for what it is, part of his development as a composer. I know that your favorite portion, I mean, you told me this when we talked about Bala the first time, you said your favorite portion of the piece musically was the love duet and that you consider it the center of the story. What makes it so effective? You see, I don't think it's so much about the murder and about what happens at the end of the opera, but the most important stuff for me and the music that is about love and their love duet, and of course it's a love that is not possible, and it turns out at the end to be that they're separating, of course, and he's sending her off with, with her husband. When I was learning it, the most beautiful music for me was the love duet. But now I can tell you that after having worked on it and worked with the orchestra, I have some other favorite moments in the opera. Which are? <laughs> Amelia's second aria. A lot of the third act is uh, just beautiful. So, you know, things change when you work with the orchestra. What can the audience listen for in this piece in terms of solo instruments that are highlighted by Verdi in the score? Well, there's a wonderful solo for an English horn, and there's a wonderful solo, and this is very unusual. The English there's horn comes in, in Act in, 2, correct? In Act 2, and I mean, it's first aria, and uh, uh, a wonderful thing is the cello solo in Amelia's second aria, which continues into Alzati, which is Eri 2, the baritone's aria, her husband's aria, which follows. And the cello sort of continues into his aria. It's beautiful. What is it like for you collaborating with Renata Scotto, who sang Amelia here years ago and is now back with us as stage director? Of course, I keep asking her, so what do you think? And she says, well, I'm here as a director. We're not going to talk about the music. She's... She's wonderful in, the, in that she does. She she wants to be the stage director and not Renata Scotto, who sang Amelia and sang so many Verdi roles, and of course was an incredibly important singer. Uh, but she refuses to talk to me about the music, which is great. There's one ambition in Verdi that you mentioned to me initially, a piece you haven't taken on yet, and that is Simon Volcanegra. Do you think Ballo is good preparation? For Bocanegra, which is the revised opera, version, every comes new later. opera by Verdi is a lesson, and you learn something new, and you learn proportions, and you learn orchestral sound, and you learn rhythm and rubato. I learn every opera is new for me. Verdi is really is different. Every opera is different. This has its own color. Now what, I know. I feel it. What was your first Verdi opera to conduct? I think it was Traviata. Yeah. And your first Verdi opera to hear in the theater. Was was uh-huh. that in Israel or was oh, yeah. that in Israel? In Israel, probably Aida. Aida with um, with the company in Tel Aviv. 
Yeah, but I don't think it was Domingo. I, I don't know. <laughs> oh, because Domingo started his career Domingo in Tel Aviv. Domingo started his career in Tel Aviv. Right. And, yeah. Now, we have an all-American Balo cast. I mean, you've worked a lot in America. You've worked a lot with American singers in European houses. So if we could generalize a bit, what do you hear in American singers both in Verdi and in other repertoire that particularly impresses you? American singers are amongst the world's most prepared singers always. And I'm sure that every conductor will tell you that. They're, they always come prepared. They're always coached. I recently had a situation, and I will not name names, of course, but I was in Japan conducting an opera. An Italian singer came to sing a huge, very important role. And he, I think he has not opened the score before the first day. And we couldn't send him home because there was nobody to come and do it with him. So this would never happen with an American singer. They're also very well prepared as far as language is concerned, which is very important for me. But... Even though they're better in, in language in Italian than, than definitely Russian singers, French singers, German singers who can really not get away from vowels. And there are some common problems of T's and D's and things that I have to work on, some vowels that are not really always clean Italian vowels, little Americanisms. But as a group, you know, if you're going to have a, an American cast, they will be right there. They'll be, and and as, as well as the orchestras. Now, you had a pretty intense couple of days here in Chicago in October. Yes. You took over some performances by the Chicago Symphony after Ricardo Muti canceled. How much time did you actually have with them before you had to perform? I, had, I, I couldn't do one rehearsal, so I had uh, two rehearsals and a dress. Oh, okay. Yeah. So was it a program that you knew already? No, I knew, well, of course, I knew Eroica. I wouldn't have done Eroica. But the other two pieces, I, I knew the Chavez. I never conducted it. And I didn't know the Wagner. And, and it's a very interesting story because uh, Muti chose to do this 1871 centennial march by Wagner uh, for America, which he composed for the, for the American centennial in Philadelphia. And um, he chose to do it of dramaturgical reasons. And I, I don't know why. And I thought, Wagner, great. Of course, I need to know all Wagner because I, I consider myself a Wagnerian. And I found the piece and I, and I saw it and I heard it for the first time. I was in shock because it's, I can't believe that Wagner actually composed it. It's, um, but I was stuck with the program. So we decided that I'll speak to the audience and tell them the story. That Sunday afternoon, I got this phone call and we're going to do a Wagner march. And I said, sure, Wagner. And then I, I found this piece that I'm, Wagner wrote for money, for $5,000 in those days, which was a lot of money. And uh, I can't believe that somebody who composed Tristan composed this after What's the Tristan. title? It's called The American Centennial, Centennial March. You don't want to look for I mean, if, if there's The only recording that I found uh, in iTunes or somewhere out in, in the, in the, on the web is by the Hong Kong Philharmonic. The, the only orchestra, you know. Listen to it. See what this, I, it's, it's fascinating. But now, really, now I know a lot about Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to go incredibly easily from one style to another. We're talking, Mo, at least in opera, Mozart, Verdi, Wagner, Puccini, Janáček, Martinu, Strauss. How is that kind of versatility acquired? Or does, just, does one just have it or one doesn't? No, it's, it, it's, it's what we do. And people don't understand it sometimes. What is a conductor if not a master of style. What we have to learn is style. We have to understand that we're not composers. We're not even playing an instrument. Yeah, we, we, we can, but when we're conducting, what we have to understand is the style of composers. So 
I'm sorry, but I call conductors who do only German music or only Italian music, I call them from the world of electronic semiconductors because it's, it, our job is to understand style and understand the various... If I do opera, I don't feel myself a complete opera conductor if I only do Mozart and, and Baroque and Handel and without Verdi or Puccini or, or, or only Wagner and no Verdi or, or, or no Wagner. But it takes longer, and that's why you can't expect to have an experienced conductor who can really conduct the various styles of opera at the age of 20 or 30 or even 40. It just takes much longer. I had the pleasure of listening to a portion of your ring on CD. It was with the Adelaide Symphony in yes, Australia, correct? Yes. And you've gotten some great response um, from it. What was it like to conduct the first complete ring in Australia? It was fabulous. First of all, because we decided, because it was so far and we wanted people to come to the ring, to open all four operas together, which is rarely done. It's only done in Bayreuth, and most companies do each year a new opera, and then they put it together. So you can imagine, I had 40 rehearsals with the orchestra before the first dress rehearsal, and then after the dress rehearsal of Rheingold, we had 10 days before opening night, because we did the rest of the of the ring. So it was very difficult. It was a huge amount of work for me, but the pleasure of doing the whole ring for the first time together and not just doing bits of Valkyrie and bits of Götterdemo. So it was Australia's first complete ring. Was it also your own first oh, yes, complete ring? Yes, wow. Yes. Wow. You now, your former music director of the Vienna Volksoper yeah. and of the Israeli Opera, right. so two exceedingly different companies. Yes. How would you characterize, first of all, the opera-going public in Israel in terms of the repertoire that they willingly Except I know that the company's done some very innovative productions. In Israel, the luxury is that by not having tradition, the tradition now it sort of starts, but you can play Katya Kabanova and, and Traviata and people will come because they're interested in the theater. They're coming. Most of, most of the opera goers in Israel come from the theater. I, you, you might not believe me, but when we did Wozzeck with Israeli opera, we had 10 sold-out houses, 10 performances for, to sold-out theater, 1,600 people. So That's fantastic. Because the production was interesting, it was good, it was modern, and they love theater over there. So they come, they might appreciate less fine singing and a lot of singers who are really well-known in the world and not known over there, but a good production will sell the house. Now, in Vienna, you were leading a company that has always been known for operetta, um, but by the time you got there, I think they were pretty heavily into standard repertoire I was, as well. Yeah, we, we, we celebrated 100 years for the Volksoper with Meistersinger, and uh, we did the first non-German sang opera there, which was Faust, Gounod, and, uh, and I must say now that I did the operettas also, and I learned more probably about conducting from conducting operettas in Vienna than from anything else. Can you explain that? It's very difficult to conduct operetta. And if you can do Fledermaus and Zingoinabon and Chardash Fürstin and uh, everything else seems very easy. What makes it difficult? Style. Uh, getting it right. Getting it together. Rubato. Nothing, nothing is as, as it's written. Not, it's, you see something on paper and in real life it's all different. And you work with divas and you work with singers and choruses. It's very interesting. Now, the atmosphere among music lovers in Vienna is sort of unique in the world, is it not? Yes, it is. Um, having spent a year there, I distinctly remember kids, I mean teenagers, coming to the stage door with their autograph books in their hands. Did you experience that? Of course. And Vienna is the only place where when I went through immigration a few times, they said, welcome back, maestro. And... Uh, 
if you take a taxi to the opera, then they know what's playing tonight. They say, oh, it's Traviata, and you're conducting it. It's <laughs> wonderful. How does being married to a singer change your perspective on conducting an opera? <laughs> The biggest influence is by working with singers. I work differently, I think, than conductors who are not close to singers because you know what it is from the other side, and I think you develop some sensitivities to... to you, you have to ask things in a, in a certain way. And if, if you know what it is to be a singer and you have one at home and you know what, what, how difficult it is to work with conductors who demand and want things and how they ask for it, and yeah. And I don't fire singers, even if I made a mistake, and even if a company made a mistake, I rarely fire a singer because it's not their fault. If they were hired to do something, then it's our fault or the intendant's fault or my fault that we hired them, thinking they can do something, and then if they can't deliver, then I rarely fire singers. In conclusion, as far as Balo and Mascara is concerned, what do you hope the audience will come away with from Balo at the end? I hope... As I, as I think I told you once, I'm, I'm by conducting German music and, and Italian music and Mozart, I try to learn from one style and implement it in the other. See what I can learn from Wagnerian playing and from playing the ring. And often I find that in Verdi performances, I don't see that the orchestra has takes the place that it should take. And of course, if you do Tristan, it's all about the orchestra. And when you go to a Verdi evening you can sometimes go out and say, yeah, great singers, but what was the orchestra doing exactly? And I, I, I really want to give them a sonic experience. I want them to go out and say that they heard wonderful singing and wonderful music making, but that the orchestra was really a major part of what was going on. So it's tricky because you, want, you don't want to be too loud, but we have a wonderful cast with huge voices, so I don't have this problem. I'm lucky. I can play the, the real dynamics that are written, and I don't have to just hush them and shush them down. And that's what I hope that they can go home with, a, a sound experience that includes the orchestra. Well, I want to wish you in Boca Lupo and Toy Toy Toy. Maestro, thank you very thank much. You. <laughs> You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org. <laughs>